Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. Tonight we're setting a record that may never be broken. The record of the longest time between messages in a sermon series. The last time we were in the Sacred Cow sermon series was three months ago. My wife said, honey, you might need to figure out something else for your Sunday night series. It's not working too well. We have no continuity whatsoever. And uh, it was at the end of March, and now we're at the end of June. And since we had our last Sacred Cow sermon, we have celebrated Easter. We have had a Seder meal. We've celebrated Mother's Day, and Father's Day, and Palm Sunday, and April Fool's Day. We've had Mental Health Sunday and a Memorial Day picnic. We've heard from guest preachers and missionaries. Some of us had children born and have already graduated from high school in between these two messages. And now we're finally back in Romans 14. I know for sure we'll be here tonight and next Sunday night. We may be here one more Sunday night. It may end at message number seven. This is message number six. And tonight is a two-part message. So, if you're listening tonight, I'll be honest, I like to use a lot of Bible in my messages. Tonight, there is not a lot of Bible. And tonight is what I would call a philosophical introduction. Next Sunday night, we're going to look at every passage, every verse that Christ talks about um, music that the New Testament, local church in the entire New Testament that is talked about, and next week will be a biblical application. So just like my normal, like a Sunday morning message or a Sunday night message, I would normally give an an introduction and kind of set things up and maybe a story and maybe an illustration, and then we would get into our text and then we would apply it. Well, just look at tonight is the introduction. It's a philosophical introduction, understanding some truths that have biblical principles that are behind them, but it's not an exposition of Scripture tonight. Next week will be a biblical application as we tie it all together. So if all you hear of this message is tonight, you could, you could make probably some bad decisions and have a wrong understanding of the topic. So even if you're going to be out of town or something next week, mark a note to go back and listen later, because if not, these are not two standalone messages. They're going to go together. But this one's already long enough, and I figured I would lose you as they say. Uh, about pastors and speaking and long messages, the mind can only endure, uh, can only absorb what the seat can endure. And so sometimes it's been said that a uh, uh, there's a fine line between a long message and a hostage negotiation. There are times where you feel like you're being held against your will. And so I hope that's not the case tonight. Um, but we're going to do this in two uh, two parts this week and next week. A little bit of review on this series um, for those that are new to the church, or you're like I didn't even remember we were in a series like this. It's been three months. What are we talking about? Uh, Sacred cows. The title is Finding Biblical Unity Even When We Disagree. Craig talked about it a little bit. We don't want to be stuck with each other. That's not biblical unity. Man, I have to be nice to them because they're a Christian. No, we want to find true Christian love and unity. We want to be together. We're walking hand in hand through this life, and we want to find that unity. I defined in the first message of this series a sacred cow as a strongly held belief, opinion, or practice that is neither commanded nor forbidden in Scripture. I want you to stop and think about this. Not always. Some churches divide over doctrine, 
and there is doctrinal compromise, there is doctrinal drift, there is scriptural compromise, and so churches will split over that. Um, There has been recently in the Southern Baptist Convention a pretty well-publicized situation with some division, and the, the name at the top of it was a pastor here in Orange County, Rick Warren, and, and he's, he was kind of battling the Southern Baptist Convention over what I believe is a matter of biblical truth and or compromise. And, and so sometimes doctrine does that. Sometimes Christians leave churches over scriptural doctrinal compromise. Can I tell you, in my 23 years of vocational ministry, my 35 years as a believer, I've had the privilege to know hundreds of pastors, if not more, tens of thousands of Christians, the vast majority of churches that I know and or that that split or that divide or that have disunity and or Christians that have disunity within those churches, sometimes to the level of leaving a church is not over settled, objective, scriptural, uh, foundational doctrine. It's usually over our sacred cows. It's over matters of personality. It's over matters of pride. It's over matters of preference. Not always, but I would say in my experience, and that's anecdotal, I understand, but in my experience, it's generally disunity, discord amongst Christians is generally much more often than not over those areas of personality, pride, and preference, not scriptural, settled scriptural truth. And so, a sacred cow, and by the way, I said it in week number one, the title of week number one was, what's your baby cow's name? I said it in week number one, it's not wrong to have sacred cows. It's not wrong to have strongly held beliefs, practices, and opinions that you feel very strongly about. That's not wrong. Paul tells us, we're in Romans 14, if you're going to follow along, that's where our text will be today. It's where we've been for every message of this series, Romans 14. Paul tells the the, the believers that he's writing to, it's okay that you disagree. It's okay that you have some strongly held beliefs, traditions, practices, preferences that, that are differing within the same church. That's okay. What's not okay is dividing over them. So you can go back and listen to those messages. For the sake of review, I'll give you the five weeks where we've been. We looked at what's your baby cow's name. We looked at mad cow disease. What's your baby cow's name? We all have them. Mad cow disease, the danger when we elevate a sacred cow uh, to the level of biblical doctrine. Uh, Week three was don't take down all the fences. Everything is not a preference. Craig talked about it with resurrection. There are things that are not up for debate, and there's a danger, and it depends on your upbringing, it depends on the church you're in, it depends on the church history you come from. There's a danger in some circles of of lowering scriptural truth to the level of personal preference. And everything's up for grabs. You live your truth, you do you, and and it's all up for grabs. That's That's a very, that's doctrinal compromise. But then there is a danger on the other side of elevating my personal preference to the level of doctrinal truth. Both of those can hurt Christians, both of those can destroy churches. And so we looked at, don't take down all the fences, everything is not a preference. It's not just whatever feels good, whatever I feel like, go back to Scripture. Number four, how to treat other cattle farmers. Romans 14 talked about what do you do when there's somebody that has a different sacred cow than you? How do we respond to them within our church or even in other churches? What should our spirit be toward those people? And then three months ago, old McDonald had a farm. We looked at, it's not only cows on the farm. And, and we talked about theological triage. The idea of being able to to understand what are things worth dividing over, what are things worth fighting over, and there are some things worth dividing over and worth fighting over. 
And what are things that are not worth that, that we ought to learn to find unity even when we disagree? And we looked at that. If you missed any of those messages, you can go back on our podcast or on our website and find those in our archived messages or on YouTube or wherever all the places we keep them. Um, You can find those things. Tonight, we come to the thing that churches and believers at least in recent generations, I would say in the last 50 to 75 years in, the, in, the, in American churches and the Western uh, world, I don't know about, I think most of the time, places where the gospel isn't as abundant in America, they don't have time to fight about this kind of stuff. They're just glad if anybody believes the truths of Scripture, and so they're not fighting over some of the things that we fight about here. Uh, but, but for sure, in the last couple of generations, the thing that Christians and churches have seemed to fight over and divide over more than almost any other issue, uh, and that is the fattest cow on the farm, if you will. Uh, the father of the prodigal son, he said, go bring me the fatted calf. Tonight we're going to look at what I'm calling the fatted calf of all of our sacred cows, an issue that is so debated and has been so divisive that we coined a term, and you'll hear it amongst churches, called worship wars. And we're going to talk tonight about worship wars, the fattest calf of them all. And worship wars, this area that has probably caused more discord, more disunity, more division in churches over the last several uh, generations than almost any other situation. Now, when I'm talking about worship wars, I am um, speaking of music, Christian music in our personal lives and then in the church. Understand, music is not the only form of worship. Worship is much more than music, and and in some ways, modern churches have kind of dumbed it down that worship is something I do for 30 minutes on Sunday morning. I have my time of worship with my worship leader, with my worship team in my worship center, and no, this is a worship center. My body, everywhere I go, I'm supposed to bring honor and glory and bring worship to Him, and worship, music is not the only way that we worship, but it is a way that we can worship. And so we're going to talk about that here. Music is often tied into our worship, and people have very strong feelings about music. I want to ask you to give these next two messages, wherever paradigm you come from, or those that might be watching or listening, listen to these things, and then I'm happy. I would love to sit down and chat through anything you're struggling with or you're wondering about. I'm still learning stuff myself as a a believer in, 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 I I, want to keep growing. I want to keep learning. And so I've not arrived with the perfect position on anything, uh, on any of these things. Um, I I think we've arrived on the perfect position on, on the foundation doctrines of truth, God's Word is there, but on on our application of some of these practices, uh, I'm happy to chat on any of these things, but worship wars have split churches. When I got here next month, it'll be eight years ago, my wife and I with our family, we rolled into town. There wasn't a worship war here at Liberty, but I would say there was a worship scuffle going on at Liberty when I arrived. And I found out about it because one, Pastor Tomlinson shared it with me a little bit, and two, I got some emails that were forwarded to me from Pastor Tomlinson to give me an update of what was happening. And three, several families decided, oh, this is my chance. There's a new pastor uh, that is coming, and I can get him on my side of this worship scuffle. And so I, I had dinners with folks, I had, I had meetings with folks, I, people stopped by my office and we chatted, and it wasn't a ton. But, but it, there was a little bit of what I would call a worship scuffle happening in the church for the year or two before I arrived. And Pastor Tomlinson was guiding and leading the church through those things. And unfortunately, um, the church has never split over this issue, but unfortunately, I would say that I'm aware of probably three to five, maybe six really good families decided uh, to move on to somewhere else um, within the course of a year or so over this very issue and over these things. And I'm thankful that our church has never split over the issue, but it has impacted us here at times with questions, with confusion, and I'll be honest, at times even with disunity 
over the matter and, and with different families deciding that they needed to leave over the issue. Unfortunately, other churches have fared far worse as they faced this issue. Our, our text is in Romans 14. I want you to see it, the first seven verses, Romans chapter number 14. All this is a little review and then we'll jump into it. Romans 14, verse number one. Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. Notice this in the church. One believeth that he may eat all things. Another who is weak eateth herbs. Sounds like my marriage. I want to eat everything, and she wants me to eat healthy. That's like, I say, honey, you're the weaker sister. We're going to eat everything. Verse number three. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him that eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Isn't that interesting? So one Christian has liberty in an area that another Christian doesn't have, and God says, I receive them both. Who's right? Yes. We don't like that, do we? I want to be right. I want my position to be right. I want everybody to come to my feeling about this issue. Notice it says in verse number four, who art thou, that you're, 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 you're disagreeing with people in the church, who art thou that judgest another man's servant? That's not your business. To his own master, which by the way is God, he standeth or falleth, yea, he shall be holding up, for God is able to make him stand. Here's another division they were having. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Here's what it says in these areas of division, in these areas of disagreement, of disunity, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Verse number six, he that regardeth the day, look at this, he that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord, and he that regardeth not the day to the Lord he doth not regard it. So who is serving God in their area of preference? Both. Who is doing it for God's glory? Both. Who is pleasing God? Both. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord. For he giveth God thanks, and he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not and giveth God thanks. We like to focus on the issue of disunity. He says the issue isn't the issue, your heart is the issue. Your heart is the issue. The issue you're dividing over, the issue you're sowing discord over, the issue you're disagreeing over isn't the issue. Your heart is the issue. The one that doesn't eat to the Lord, he gives, or that eats, he gives thanks to the Lord. And the one that doesn't eat, he gives thanks to the Lord. It's a relationship with him. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. What were they fighting over in this church? Again, we talked about this, so I don't have a lot, I don't want to spend a lot of time here. But it was three years ago when we started the series that we talked about it. So let me remind you. They were talking about two things they were struggling with, meat what they could or couldn't eat, liberty in their, in, their, in their, what you would call meat, which was an area of their private devotion, things they didn't have liberty privately in their own worship to God to do or that they did have liberty to do, and the other was days in their public displays. So there was a matter of private devotion, there was a matter of public displays that they were fighting about. Why were they fighting? Because they came from different backgrounds. They came from different families. They came from different religious traditions. They were brought up in different churches. Sound familiar? Kind of applicable to us. They came from different cultures. And what were they fighting about? They both, both the Jews and the Gentiles had hangups about the food they could eat, but for different reasons. The Jews' hangups were, they were following Old Testament law, they couldn't eat any bacon or lobster. Condolences, right? We feel badly for them. And and the Gentiles are like, you're dumb. Have you ever tried bacon-wrapped lobster? (laughs) That might change your thinking. 
But then the Gentiles couldn't eat meat that had at one time been offered to idols because they grew up in pagan homes. They grew up worshiping false gods. And so for them, that was something as they were saved, they were getting away from that. That meat had connotations for them that it didn't have for the Jews. What did Paul say? (laughs) It's just meat. There's some good steak. I don't care if it was offered to an idol or not. It's being offered to, to my body right now. But, and the Jews, but for them, certain things had connotations to their past life, and they looked and said, this reminds me of before I was saved, so I can't eat that meat that was offered to idols. And the Jews are like, those idols are, that's just aluminum cans that your parents fashioned into some statue. Who cares? Let's eat the meat. And they're both struggling. And the Jews, we call them Judaizers. I may show you a video next week of a, Titus was in a Bible college class and he sent our family thread a few months ago, a three minute video on Judaizers uh, that was powerful. But the Judaizers, they were trying to get the Gentiles to take on all of their religious traditions and sacred cows, if you will, hangups, whatever you want to call them, personal beliefs, practices. They're called Judaizers. Hey, if you want to be a good Christian, you got to eat like us. If you want to be a good Christian, you got to look like us. If you want to be a good Christian, you need to make this decision and that, and you need to do this and that. And, and Paul is saying, it's not about that. If you want to be a good Christian, you need to know Jesus Christ and give him everything and walk with him for a lifetime. And the Gentiles were like, you you should try it, it's really good, you should try this bacon. And they're saying, I can't in good conscience. I was taught that this goes against God's Word. And and by the way, it did in the Old Testament, but now they're in a new covenant, and now they're no longer under that law. Christ has fulfilled the law, and Paul says, it's all clean, but it's okay if you can't get to a place that you can eat bacon, don't fight over it. It's okay, love one another in spite of your differences. And so we see it's what they were fighting over, matters of private devotion, personal devotion, matters of public displays. And Paul said these are personal preferences you feel very strongly about that are dividing and destroying this new church where Christ is changing lives. Here's what Paul says, and he says in verse number 20, for meat, destroy not the work of God. What does he say um, in verse number, uh, oh man, there's another one he talks about in here. Oh, verse 15, if your brother's grieved, destroy not him with thy meat. Basically, said, he said, oh, here it is, verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. He says, stop focusing on the stuff that you have differently. Stop focusing on the things you differ in this area of preference. The, the work of God is bigger than meat and drink. It's bigger than the things in your area of personal devotion and public displays. It's all about Jesus. Stop fighting. Stop fighting. He says, stop dividing unnecessarily over these things. Don't destroy the work of God for your sacred cow. Doctrine divides, preferences shouldn't. I want to make it clear, and and for those that are saying, Pastor Ryan's trying to lead us into some kind of compromise, go back and listen to the whole series. And if you really believe that, let's meet, because I'm not, and if I'm coming across that way, I'd love to talk about it. Let me make it clear, we do not seek unity at all costs. We do not seek unity at all costs. But we do seek unity everywhere that we can. 
Didn't Paul say that in 1 Corinthians chapter number 1? Now I beseech you, I beg you, brethren, a carnal church that was fighting and dividing over personality and pride and carnality. Uh, By the way, sometimes those that have the biggest problem with preferences in the church of other people, they have the most problem with carnality and wickedness and immorality in their own lives. And I I, I can say that from experience of dealing with people. It's often those that have the biggest hang-up, want to make the biggest deal about a secondary or tertiary issue that come to find out had the biggest uh, skeleton in their closet if you will. I'm not saying every time that's the case, but often this is what's happening in, in the church at Corinth. I beseech you that, you that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. I want you to strive for the unity, the fellowship of the gospel, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He says, be of the same mind and the same judgment. But by the way, comparing Scripture with Scripture, That didn't mean they all agreed, because we can go to Romans where he says, you don't have to agree. You have to love each other in spite of your disagreements, and you have to give each other space and grace. Like most preferences that believers fight over and divide over and despise one another, the two divisive issues that the Roman believers had in common, uh, that they were struggling with, have much in common with many of our divisive issues today. I want to give you three thoughts of many of our divisive issues that we ascribe We say they are biblical issues, and very often they they are not subject, they are subjective uh, applications of biblical principles. They are not objective black and white biblical principles. Often the things that we despise other believers, other pastors, and other churches about. And usually, often, they are not truly biblical. They might be an application of a biblical principle there, but where we land, our application is not truly biblical. Often, what they were here, they are cultural, they are regional, they are generational. Often the things we divide over and fight over are cultural, regional, and generational. I'm going to talk about it tonight. Cultural. What was it for the Gentiles? It was based, the things they were fighting over was based on the Gentile culture. And for the Jews, it was based on their Jewish culture. The things they were fighting over were not biblical. Now, they thought they were, but they were not biblical. Paul makes it clear these are not things to divide over. They were cultural. This is what you're used to or what you're not used to. Based on the Gentile culture, they couldn't eat meat offered to idols with a good conscience. The Jews had, their culture had no issue with that. The Jewish culture couldn't eat certain foods in good conscience. The Gentiles' culture said these were not truly biblical issues, they were cultural issues. Sometimes they're regional, based on where you grew up and how you grew up, and often they're generational. The Jews' church background for generations caused them to feel strongly about some things that the Gentiles' parents and grandparents had never taught them. I got saved, I was not brought up into a third or fourth or fifth generation Christian home. And I got saved, and I remember coming into a church, and a church that at that time was an established church and had, had many families that were established Christian families. I remember finding some of the things that they did, and like it was a big deal. I think I mentioned one of them a while ago. You know, one time I remember my father-in-law, he was preaching against the Smurfs. And I'm like, what? My mom let me watch the Smurfs yesterday. Like, that's not a thing. That's not a problem. But so, and that's just a, a humorous illustration. But there were things where it was like, what? That's, and that's weird to me. And everyone else was like, oh, yeah, no, Christians don't do that. Or, and then you start to ask, well, why don't Christians do that? Or what's wrong with that? Well, I don't know. We just always haven't done that. Or it's just always not something. We, and there are some things that we haven't done because the Bible says it. And others, it's just generational. And it's something that your grandparents or your parents did. And maybe now your kids don't. Most of the things 
that good Christians and good churches fight over fall into the category not of doctrinal absolutes, but of cultural, regional, and generational preferences and practices. Can I give you a few examples to prove my hypothesis here, my thesis, if you will? One of those that would be cultural, regional, and generational that I've heard preaching against and people casting judgment on a church or a pastor, church construction and decor. Churches fighting and dividing over where the piano goes, what color the carpet is, are we going to have pews or chairs? Are we going to have a white ceiling or a dark ceiling? Is it going to be exposed uh, uh, air conditioning vents? Or like ours, it's all going to be under sheetrock. What's the pulpit going to look like? Oh, it's a glass pulpit. That guy must not love Jesus. I don't like glass pulpits. I don't think I'll ever have a glass pulpit while I'm here. That's not my preference. But the Bible doesn't say, it talks about a pulpit of wood, but it's not saying thou shalt have a pulpit of wood. That's a prophet in the Old Testament. The Bible doesn't say in the New Testament local church you've got to have a, a pulpit of wood. These are, these are generational, these are cultural, these are regional. You go to certain parts of the world and they'd be like, what are you talking about? Why are you guys fighting about that over there? You'd be hard pressed in California to find a steeple. Go to New England in the south, what are you going to find everywhere? You ever fly into one of those cities in New England or in the south and there's steeples everywhere and you're like, wow, they got more churches in that city than we have in our whole state. Well, look at all those steeples. What is that? The Bible doesn't say you have to, uh, that, that, that is not a, that's a cultural, regional, generational preference. It's a construct, but yet sometimes those things we preach about. Service schedule, uh, churches have divided over. We, we have Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night services. We have some things on Tuesday and Thursday, and sometimes on, on Tuesday morning and Thursday night, and sometimes we don't have a Sunday night, we have a modified service schedule, and we do different things, and, and missions conference, we go Saturday to Tuesday. Can I let you in on a little secret? Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, I love it. It's, it's what I've done my whole life. It's not in the Bible. And, and a church might choose to change and put, have Sunday school on Sunday or have it on Sunday night or like we do, do our group structure in the midweek and do this. And all of a sudden, it's this illustration that that person is denying the faith. No, they're just changing the format of their church services to try to best serve those people God's called them to serve. I've been in Africa with a very traditional Bible-believing missionary that does, has never had and never will have a Sunday night service. You know why? Because everybody walks or rides a bus to church. And they can't get back for a Sunday night service. And by the way, he graduated from a Bible college and grew up in a church that would say, if you want to be faithful to truth, you're going to have a Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night service. Our church has taken a trip to his church in Africa. They don't have a Sunday night service. Why? In their context, it doesn't make any sense. And you want to know what's biblical, those that, well, if you don't have Sunday night, you're, you must be on the road, the slippery slope of compromise. You want to know what's biblical, those that only, that only have three, that only do Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, you don't want to ask them? Why aren't you meeting daily and from house to house? Because that's what's in the New Testament. Daily and from house to house. They were meeting every day. They were studying every day. They were gathering every day. Uh, the the uh, things that, that are cultural, regional, generational. A pastor's dress when preaching. I'm wearing, I was wearing a suit and tie. Took the jacket off. I got too hot. Again, I, I don't want to burst anybody's bubble. Jesus didn't wear a suit and tie. The disciples didn't wear a suit and tie. I'm not against a suit and tie. It's generational. It's cultural. It's regional. If you go to Hawaii, you're going to be hard-pressed to find a pastor every time wearing a suit and tie. You go to the Philippines, you're going to be even harder-pressed to find somebody. You go to certain countries where it's a thousand degrees, I'm not wearing a suit and tie over there. And by the way, it's just not their culture. They have barongs that is the culture of what you wear for formal events. What is that? It's not biblical. But yet. 
Have you ever heard of a Christian looking down upon or what's happening to our church or preaching against another pastor because his dress doesn't look like their dress? It's cultural. It's regional. It's generational. During the hippie movement, pastors preached against beards and facial hair and hair over the ears. You ever wonder how Javen became the face of welcoming you to our church as he walks in? You ever wonder how that happened? Have you ever seen Javen's haircut? This is not a lie. Can I tell this for the Javen? Javen came to our church and tried to join the choir, and they didn't let him because they said, you got to get your hair cut. You're not going to have anybody with hair over the ears up in the choir. And Javen said, I ain't getting my hair cut. And he didn't say it like that, but he just wasn't getting his hair cut. So guess what? Guess who won? Javen now greets every person that walks into our church. Instead of one obscure voice in the choir, which thank God he didn't join the choir, if you've ever heard him sing. <laughs> Instead of one obscure face in the choir for 10 minutes, now he's the first person everybody sees when they walk in the church with his hair, his, his, his hippie hair over his ears back there. Again, I joke, I'm not against those that took and had some personal standards and maybe institutional guidelines. And by the way, in a certain generation, some of those things, why did they preach against those things or not allow those things? Because in a certain generation, not my generation, but in a certain generation, to grow that was a sign of rebellion. Keith has a mustache. That was, that's not a sign of rebellion in 2023. Nobody sees Keith and says, he must be part of the, uh, the, alt, the, the countercultural movement, man. He's a hippie. He's, he's trying to get away from structure. That's not what anyone... But in a generation, if that's what you had, you identified with being a rebel that didn't want to be told what to do by anybody. You were going against all societal norms. And so pastors from a good place said, as believers, we're going to look different. We're going to, we're going to do some things personally that are not going to identify us with a group that is not going in the direction we want to go. And those things became traditions. They were generational. They were cultural in America. They weren't cultural in, another, in, in China or in Japan, but they were cultural and generational in America. And we took those things, and I could show you clips tonight of in the last 10 or 15 years, pastors standing up and preaching against people with facial hair. What is that? It's a sacred cow that we ought not fight over. Men's dress and ladies' dress, while definitely addressed in Scripture, the practical applications are often cultural, regional, generational. Think of a kilt in Scotland. That's no way looked at as effeminate. An African warrior, they wear full-length robes as they hunt lions and leopards and other fierce killers. It is often, the dress is often cultural, regional, generational. This is so important to remember when we are preaching, teaching, and making decisions for ourselves and then imposing our preferences on others. Why? We need to ask ourselves, is this a scriptural mandate or is this a cultural, regional, or generational application of a biblical principle? This is vital. I told you this is a philosophical introduction with biblical application next week. This is not just in the area of music, but in every area of strongly held personal belief and practice. It's okay to have strongly held belief and practice that is, not, that is, that is a cultural, regional, or generational application. It's okay. But you need to be able to delineate in your mind, this is a scriptural mandate, this is commanded or forbidden in scripture, or this is my personal application where I'm fully persuaded in my own mind that our family can partake in this. There are things that some of you do in your home that I would not have liberty to do in my home. And I think you're good Christians. And there are some things that, that we would do in our home that you would not do in your home. 
And I don't think they're sinful things. I think they, some of them are personal, generational, cultural, regional, and we need to be able, here's been the problem sometimes, and it was happening some 2,000 years ago, so I don't feel too bad that it's still happening in our churches today. Here's the problem. We often conflate the, the, the objective biblical truth with our subjective personal application. And then we preach as, as uh, doctrine the commandments of men. We elevate tradition to the level of Scripture. With that in mind, I want to give you a few thoughts about the fattest calf on the farm as we make decisions really in every area of liberty, but in this area that often will be a dividing line over good believers and good churches and good pastors. Number one, music is a gift from God. Music is a gift from God. God created music. He created us as people to create, to enjoy, to use music to enrich our lives and bring honor and glory and worship to Him. The longest book in the Bible by number of chapters is what book? Psalms. It's a song book. It's psalms. It was Israel's songs that they would sing to God. God music is a gift from God. David, a man after God's own heart, was a tremendous musician. But like every good gift that God created, Satan has sought to pervert it. Satan has taken a beautiful gift from God that is used to enrich our lives, that is used to strengthen us. Has music ever ministered to you in a tough time? I can think of some times I've been driving in my car and tears flowing down my face, listening to a song with beautiful truth that ministers to me in that moment. And, and, and God created those things, one, to minister to us, two, for us to minister to each other, speaking to yourselves in songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing, making melody unto the Lord. The, the, the instrumental special and the vocals and the, and the music team, what did they do? We ministered to each other through music. It can minister to us. It can minister to each other. And then we can use it to bring honor and glory to Him, and it draws us closer to Him. But like any good gift that God makes, Satan wants to pervert it, and he wants to uh, use it for sinful purposes. Number two, music is powerful. Music is powerful. And so we have to understand we're dealing with something that came from God that has great power in our lives, for good or for bad. Has great power. Music has great power. Music influences our emotions, our thoughts, our associations, and our actions. Your music influences your emotions, your thoughts, your associations, and your actions. It's why they use different, movie, different music in different movies. When I say a horror film, what kind of music are you thinking of? I, I, I use different, they use different m music if it's a suspenseful thing, if it's a, if it's a comedy of errors, what they're going to use certain carnival type music. Different music evokes different thoughts and feelings and emotions in our lives. Listen to this song. See what happens. I'm not going in the ocean, right? And those that are older that go back and watch that, they like, Ashlyn was at Universal Studios a few weeks ago, and she saw where they filmed it, that mechanical jaws that comes out. She was like, how was anybody scared of that? That's the most fake-looking shark I've ever seen in my life. And those that they, their, your CGI is so much better than ours, all right? And so those, the younger generation is like, that's not scary at all. Like, that's funny. That's a comedy movie. But for us, I don't know about you, I remember seeing that, and I was scared to death. And why do they play that music? That music immediately, when you hear that, 
you think of, and you're, you're reminded, and it's cultural. If someone has never seen Jaws, that still might be a little scary, but because they've seen Jaws, that music evokes different thoughts and emotions, because, and that's why they used it. How many have ever heard this song at a stadium? An amazingly complex song has the following lyric for three minutes, oh, 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 oh. It's just a combination of notes with O. And is the word, is the letter O good or bad? It's the letter O. But they put, and what happens when people hear that, especially if it's an exciting part of a game, there's a comeback or they just hit a home run, you know what 50,000 people are doing? They're jumping around like idiots, oh, oh, and music impacts our emotions and our actions. What about this? What does this music do to you? Some of you are already about to fall asleep, and that just puts you right over the edge. That's like maybe you'll play that to your kids to get them to go to sleep, or maybe you're getting your nails done somewhere, and there's the spa music playing. Guess what? They're never playing the spa music at the stadium. And they're never playing the stadium music at the spa. And they're not going to play Jaws at a spa, and they're not going to play the spa for Jaws. Why? Because music is powerful, and different music influences us in different ways. To illustrate the, the power that music has to influence us, I want you to picture who goes, and I'm going to give you a few things, who goes to the, what I'm about to say? How do they look? How are they dressed? And how are they behaving? If I say a symphony. In your mind, when I say a symphony, an orchestra, a hundred-piece orchestra playing a symphony, Who's walking into that building? And how are they dressed? And how are they behaving? You all have a picture of what that looks like. What if I said the same thing for a Metallica concert? Is that the same group walking in? Are they dressed the same? Now, there might be people, by the way, there may be some people that would go to, a, I don't know Metallica's still around, but would go to a Metallica concert that would go to a symphony. It might be the same, but immediately we're picturing maybe like chains and maybe darker clothes and longer hair and maybe the smell of some, some drugs wafting through the stands. And we're picturing immediately based on that genre of music a different thing. Do the same thing for a Justin Bieber concert. Junior high girls going crazy and fainting, right? As he says the words, baby, 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 and then they're all falling over. It's a different group, a bluegrass concert. Do you have a picture in your mind? Some guys in overalls with bare feet, a straw coming out of their mouth, a rap concert, a country music concert. Every one of these conjures up a different image. Why? Because music powerfully influences our emotions, our thoughts, our associations, and our actions. No matter how we want to paint it, music impacts us in those ways. Number three, most musical components are amoral. What are musical components? Words, notes, instruments. That's kind of how you come up with a song, right? Words, notes, instruments, and then people that are smarter and more musical than me arrange all of those in a certain way where it becomes a song that we sing or we listen to. And, and most musical components are all moral, meaning 
of no moral value, right or wrong? Is a brick right or wrong? Is a brick good or evil? Talk to me. Which one is it? It's all moral. In the hand of the right person, it could be used to build a school or an orphanage or a church, and in that time, a brick is being used for good purposes. In the hands of the wrong person, it could be used to crack your windshield or your, your, your window and steal your laptop. It's all about how that component is used. Let, let me illustrate. We're over here. And, and so, is a piano good or bad? It depends if Janine is playing it or Elton John. Is this note I'm going to play? I'm just going to say it's a C because you don't know either. Is that a C? It's a high C, middle C, low C, B flat. I don't know what this is. Is that note good or bad? It's just a note. Music, the most musical, the words love, hate, God, those, those in and of themselves are not good or bad. Now, of course, God, but, but used wrongly to, to I love God, or even the word sin, we would think automatically is negative. If, you, if you're singing, I hate sin, that's not bad. But if you wrote a song that says, I hate God, I love sin, what have you done? You have taken amoral components, combined them in a way that now they have morality. Now they are influencing you for good or for bad. It's the way that these components of notes, timing, instruments, and lyrics are combined that gives music its morality. Number four, let me say, number four, most music is not amoral. Most music, in my opinion, has a form of morality, meaning it is either drawing us closer to God, causing us to do good things or think good thoughts or leading us in good places, or it's doing the opposite. Not all music. I think there's some music that's just neutral. I think maybe that, that spa music might be neutral. It's just piano playing with a flute, with water running, birds chirping. Uh, but, but most music, and I think this is why it's vital that we really think through what music are we allowing into our lives, what music are we allowing into our homes, what music are we allowing into our churches, because uh, for those that were taught that maybe the, the box of acceptable music for a Christian is here, if you're not careful, you've opened Pandora's box and allowed everything in. And music does have the power to do good or bad things in our lives. There are many genres and, and bands and songs that encourage sinful practices, that encourage rebellion to authority and immorality and mistreatment or objectification of women, physical relationships outside of marriage, violence, suicide, living for self, covetousness, and all kinds of wickedness, drugs, and, and, and it promotes drugs and alcohol. And what we took there with those songs, they took some all-moral components and they created, and I could stand up here and read you uh, just wicked lyrics all night long. They've created songs that put thoughts that are, don't go along with the biblical principle whatsoever things are good and pure and lovely and honest and of good report. And when that happens, if that song is causing me to dwell on things that are not pleasing to God, guess what? That song has an immoral influence in my life. Music is not, when I say most components are all moral, does not mean so then I have liberty in Christ, I can listen to anything. No, music is powerful. 
And most music, I believe, has a positive or negative influence on our morality, for a lack of a better term, on our thoughts. Are we thinking good thoughts and pure thoughts, thinking the right things? And so there's multiple. But on the other hand, there are countless groups and songs that have used music to point people to Christ and to teach biblical theology to billions for centuries. Most music in your life is having a positive spiritual impact or a negative spiritual impact. We must be honest about what the music in our life is doing for us and through us and to us. It's why this issue matters. It is drawing us closer to Christ or farther from Him. Number five, some music is just setting appropriate. Not necessarily a matter of right or wrong, sinful or evil, just a matter of propriety and appropriateness. Let me give you an illustration. One of my favorite songs on the Toy Story soundtrack, You've Got a Friend in Me. Some of you are humming it in your brain now. You've got a friend. Go ahead, sing it along. There's nothing, oh, thank you, Charlene. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. In my opinion, there's nothing sinful about that song. When I listen to that, we've done it where at times we've done a road trip back before you could put, hook your phone up to Bluetooth. We did a 6,000-mile road trip probably 12, 15 years ago, something like that. And we created multiple road trip CDs. And on there was You've Got a Friend in Me. And when I hear that song, I think of that road trip, singing to my family, telling little Titus sitting in his little car seat, hey, Ty, you're my buddy. Hey, Tej, you're my best friend. And I think of, you got a, to my kids, you've got a friend in me. And that song, for me, it has great memories of a relationship of our family growing closer together. I'm not asking Pastor Sammy to lead us in that song next Sunday morning. Why? It's setting appropriate. In my opinion, there's nothing immoral or moral, if anything. It's a positive thing in my life, but it wouldn't make sense in church at this place. A love song that my wife and I might drive to a restaurant listening to on an anniversary date, I'm not going to sing in church, or I might not even play with my children in the car. Doesn't mean it's wrong and I'm hiding it from them. It's a different relationship. And there are different settings where different things are appropriate between a husband and a wife that might not be the right thing when I'm driving my basketball team to a basketball tournament. Understanding, and again, this issue, we, we like to make things so black and white, and basically what it comes down to, often as pastors and as Christians, is what I'm okay with is what God's okay with. And the problem is, what that does is it elevates us to the level of God. And this, 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 this issue is nuanced, and it's complex, and it's personal, and it's cultural, and it's regional, and it's generational. Like many areas where there is room for people to have different preferences or applications, much of music is cultural. If I said cowboy culture, you're immediately going to think of certain music. If I said the sports culture, or you're going to work out at a gym, you're going to think of certain music. Youth culture is going to be different than maybe um, if you had a, a sewing club for grandmothers over the age of 75. You, you might think of different music in those things. It's cultural. If you go to a rodeo, what music are you going to hear? Country music, right? It's the rodeo country culture. Music is also regional. It's regional. Not only is it cultural, but it's regional. I've already talked about this a little bit overall, but I want to dig into it a little bit more music understanding because this helps us. I played for you a while ago a church that I went to in Africa, that new church plant. Do you remember? Some of you remember this clip, and I'm not going to show it tonight, today, but the ladies were, were they were doing this crazy thing that if it happened here, we would all be looking around like, Usher, somebody help this lady. 
And I was the only one that thought it was weird. I was looking around like, what's happening in this church? And this church was started uh, by one of our missionaries that's one of the most traditional, what you might call old-fashioned missionaries in this area of music. And in their culture, in their region of the world, that was just normal. They clap. There's a lot more rhythm in Africa. They clap. They do these things. And understanding, for me, it was an eye-opener that what I'm okay with, what I'm comfortable with, can be different in other places. Music is often not right or wrong. It's regional. Let me prove it. Music, what do you think of when you hear this? Anybody ready to get some chips and salsa? What country do you think of? Mexico. All that was, I don't even know what that was. Who's a musician? Is that a trumpet and a guitar? It's called mariachi. I'm trying to think of the instruments that they put together. Yeah, it's, it's a mariachi, but it's, it's the whatever the shaker things. It's three or four instruments, but what they've done is they've created music that now we immediately identify with a certain region of the country and some really good food. They're going to be playing that at some of your favorite, and they're going to bring you a bowl of chips and salsa after church. But music, again, is that, is that, in my opinion, I, I don't know the history of mariachi music. For me, when I listen to that, it doesn't make me love God more. It doesn't make me love God less. It doesn't make me want to be a better dad. It doesn't want to make me a worse dad. It makes me want to eat chips and salsa. That's what it does. That music is not, for me in my life, it's not right or wrong. It's regional. What about this one? What do you think of when you hear this? Some spaghetti. Lady in the Tramp, an Italian restaurant. What about the next one? That is an instrument that's called a sitar. I think it's a 10-stringed instrument, kind of like a guitar, but with a lot, it's a lot harder to play. I have a friend in Northern California, actually Joyce, who plays our violin uh, on Sunday mornings. Her dad plays the sitar, and I've been in his house and watched him. It's a beautiful instrument. Does anybody in here know how to play a sitar? Have we ever played a sitar in our church? No. Is there anything wrong with a sitar? You might have a preference of those three, Mexican, the mariachi music, the Italian music, the sitar, the Indian music. You might have a preference of those three. But those are not right or wrong. Those are regional. They're cultural. They're just different. And based on where you grew up and how you grew up and what you like, you like one of those more than the others. But I don't believe that any of those that I just played was sinful or wicked. They were all very different. Music is often cultural. It's often regional. What part of the world do you think of if I say the following instrument? A banjo. You're going to automatically probably think of the South. An ukulele. What are you going to think of, most of us? Hawaii. What are we going to think of? We say bagpipes. Scotland. A bongo drum. We might think of Africa. I don't even know what this is. A didgeridoo. It's just fun to say. It's Australia. Oh, you guys know it. Australian. A hurdy, hurdy gurdy. I thought that was a guy on Sesame Street, but I found out in study for this message. That's a musical instrument. A hurdy gurdy is Celtic music. I don't know what it sounds like, but now I want to go buy a, a hurdy-gurdy just because it sounds cool. Guess what? I just said a certain instrument, and you immediately thought of a region of the world. Music is regional, not inherently right or wrong. Number three, it's generational. And here is where we can end up with some really strong feelings. 
my generation had the best. What I'm comfortable with is what God's comfortable with. What I like and what I'm used to is the ultimate. I don't want to be unkind. I hate to break it to you. Whatever generation you grew up in within America is not what music sounded like two or 3,000 years ago in Israel. Nothing that we sang today, there might be some similarities in what we're singing, praise to God. Some of our songs are based off of scripture, but nothing that we sang, we sang some songs that were hundreds of years old today, and we sang some songs that were written in the last decade, and everything in between. We sang some songs that are in the hymnal, and we sang some songs that aren't in the hymnal, and guess what? Not one of them is anything that any of the disciples ever sang. Ever. It's generational. And yet we, because my grandpa sang it, Jesus wrote it. Well, that's not what I'm used to. By the way, I was talking to Jamie before the service tonight. Did you know there are songs we sing in our church that I don't like? Sammy knows because I tell him, don't sing that one again. (laughs) And Sammy and me fight sometimes. Like, that's a stupid song. It's so shallow. It has no point. He's like, it's a great song. It moves people in their spirit, and they they worship God. And I said, who's the pastor around here? He said, well, who's the song leader? Go lead the singing. He doesn't say that. But here's where we can end up with some really strong feelings. And there's so many things in our culture, even in music, that are not necessarily right or wrong. They're just generational. And in our culture, so many things are not right or wrong. They're just generational. For instance, 50 years ago, none of your parents or grandparents could have ever imagined people paying $6 a day for a cup of coffee from a store every morning before work. You know what they had? They had a can of Folgers on top of the fridge, and that's all they needed. I don't know why, but it always had to be on top of the fridge. Maybe in my house only. That's all they needed. Six dollars? For some of you are like me, you still feel that way. Six dollars for a cup of coffee in the morning? Guess who doesn't feel that way? My daughter. I buy coffee if I'm going to study and I'm going to take up their table for eight hours. I feel like I should at least buy a five dollar cup of coffee. Or if I'm meeting one of you at a coffee shop. That's when I buy coffee. I'm not going to Starbucks. My wife, almost always, when she's going to get something, she'll say, do you want me to pick you up something? And almost always, every now and again, probably nine times out of ten, I say, no, I don't want anything. I'm not paying six dollars for a cup of coffee, unless I'm using their table for eight hours, then that's a good deal. That's 75 cents an hour. But you know what has happened. Starbucks changed the thinking of a generation. Is coffee right or wrong? I guess Lester Rolla preached against it because it was a, a, caffeine's a drug, so maybe it's wrong. But for most of us, is coffee right or wrong? Coffee, is ju- it's not a right or wrong thing. It's a generational thing. How many of you have been to a professional sporting event in the last year or two? My hand is up. How many have been to a professional sporting event in the last year or two? Most of us. Did you walk in? How many of you that just raised your hand, you wore a suit, tie, top hat, or nice dress to that sporting event? Let me just see. We had hun- uh, over 100 hands raised. This is how they went to baseball games a couple generations ago. None of you dressed that nice for church today, let alone a baseball game. (laughs) Myself included. They got hats. They got bow ties. That's to watch a sports game. 75 years ago, the next picture, here's how they were walking into a Brooklyn Dodgers game. Look at them. I've been to weddings and funerals that people weren't dressed that nice. Javen, I want to see you like that next time you go support your boys in blue. And I got, that's another message for another time. The Dodgers doing some stuff that is wrong with who they're supporting, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave that alone. I'll leave that alone right now. Is it right or wrong to wear a suit to a baseball game? 
It's cultural. It's generational. But you talk, and by the way, we could have a conversation about whether generations were doing a little better when we had a little more manners. We could have those conversations, but it's not objectively wrong to wear a polo shirt and jeans to a a professional baseball game. If it was, you would have worn a suit and tie last time you went. But you're okay with it because culture has changed, and culture has changed in a way that is not unscriptural. It's just changed. Again, we could argue whether people look sharper and people are sloppier now, and I probably would agree. We could argue about those things, but it's not scriptural. It's preferential. It's regional. It's personal. In the last hundred years in American music, we've had big band and disco and jazz and ragtime and blues and swing and crooners and rock and roll and folk music and soul music, R&B, hip-hop, country, heavy metal, rap, boy bands, reggae, and the list goes on. I'm not saying I believe that many of those genres are associated with and often promote things that are unscriptural. I'm not saying all of those are okay. I say that list to say it shows that music changes with the generations, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. But here Here's what normally happens. Whatever we were used to in our generation is the better, and whatever the next generation is doing is the worst, and that our opinion and our preference is not the standard by which to apply it. This is the standard by which to make those choices. And that's what we're going to do next Sunday night. Pipe organ. Been to J- with Javen to a Dodgers game. They still play the pipe organ sometimes there, don't they, Javen, at the Dodgers game? And when they do, Javen puts a hand up and says, Amen. And then when they play some of that other newfangled music, what does Javen say? What's going on here? Give me the organ back. And I'm like, am I in church or at the Dodgers game? Because you sound like some church members I know. And by the way, I agree with Javen on some of that. But how many, or, how many stadiums still play pipe organ music? Very few. Is it wrong that most don't have them? No, it's generational. How many churches built in the last 50 years were built with a giant, beautiful pipe organ as a centerpiece of their music program? Very few. Pipe organs didn't make its way into churches until more than a thousand years after Christ was here. And even then, it was often in monastic churches and cathedrals in Europe, often associated with things like Catholicism. Yet Pastor Tomlinson, some 15 or 20 years ago, faced angry emails and upset members when they decided to move the organ from this spot off the platform. An instrument that didn't exist when Jesus walked on the earth caused discord in this church. Why? Because we didn't understand that it was cultural, generational, regional, personal, preferential. It was not biblical. And I'm not against a pipe organ. I actually like the sound. I love it. I like it um, when, if they're using this over here, they can put it to an organ. And I hear a little bit of an organ. I grew up with an organ in my church. I like an organ. What I don't like is churches fighting over an organ. Because it's not a biblical thing. It's a personal thing. It was rejected by churches, by the way, like ours for a long time. Organs were viewed as this thing we shouldn't let into the church, and now they're viewed as this picture of that's a really traditional church. Is it wrong for a church to have or use an organ? No. Is it necessary and required to be a biblical church? No. The piano, the gold standard and primary instrument of conservative Christian music in most Orthodox Christian churches in the West, at least maybe around the world, it is the primary instrument used to accompany congregational singing. If a church only has one instrument in its congregational singing, in its music practice, what is that instrument most likely going to be? A piano. Do you know how long a piano has been in churches? How long long it's been in, in the world? 300 years. Jesus and the disciples didn't carry a piano into every synagogue they went to. 
It's been around since 1700. And by the way, it didn't come into churches until about a hundred, little over a hundred years after that. Why? Because it was associated with bars and taverns. Piano music was what you played when you wanted to go dance into the honky-tonk or whatever it was called back then 300 years ago. Pianos were pushed away. Really, in some churches, all instrumentation was. We're only going to sing a cappella. We're not going to do those things. But now the piano is the gold standard in our lives. What is that? We don't, in, in, in years ago, centuries ago, it was viewed as a wicked instrument because it had association since it was often played in taverns and bars. But who here, who here has ever sent me or Pastor Tomlinson an email about our piano. Why did you let that wicked instrument in? None of us. Why? Because it's accepted. That's what you use with sacred music. It's generational. It's new. It's generational. In fact, 90% of the music we sing today was written in the last 10% of church history. The oldest hymns you know were written in the last 10% of church history. Maybe the last 20% max. You go through our hymnal, you're going to be hard-pressed to find anything more than two to 300 years old. And we think of that as, don't lose. And by the way, we sang probably five or six hymns from the hymnal today. I don't want to lose the old hymns. I like that it brings generations together. As long as I'm here, there is no plan for us not to sing hymns. I, I, we just had a hymn sing. I, I, we, I sing hymns around bedsides at funerals. I sing hymns with my family in the car. We sing hymns at church. But we view the old hymns. The old hymns were written in the 17 and 18 and 1900s. That's not real old. It's old to us because we weren't around then, but be careful. We think of new music as that which was written in the last couple decades, but in light of church history, almost everything in our hymnal is newer music, even what we call the old hymns. It's funny how we view songs today versus how they were viewed when they came out. I want to read you a couple statements here. Here's a letter that was written. It says, I am no music scholar, but I feel I know appropriate church music when I hear it. Last Sunday's new hymn, if you can call it that. Sounded like a sentimental love ballad one would expect to hear crooned in a saloon. If you ex insist on exposing us to rubbish like this in God's house, don't be surprised if many of the faithful look for a new place to worship. The hymns we grew up with are all we need. I wonder what song they could feel so strongly about. Go ahead and put that up. It was a letter written in 1863 about the song, Just As I Am. Anybody have a problem with just as I am today? They did. Let me read a review of a song that's a little more modern than just as I am. What is wrong with the inspiring hymns with which we grew up? When I go to church, it is to worship God, not to be distracted with learning a new hymn. Last Sunday's was particularly unnerving. The tune was unsingable, and the new harmonies were quite distorting. From a letter written in 1890 about what a friend we have in Jesus. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to remind all of us those things that we think and we feel so strongly about, let's run them back through and say, is that my personal taste? Is that my personal preference? Is that generational? There were people fighting pastors over just as I am and what a friend we have in Jesus uh, 150, 100, whatever that is years ago. Or is this biblical? 
Because by the way, it's not, you don't have to like the songs I like. Now we're going to talk next week, there are some songs we should all not like. Things that are going against God, teaching us wrong theology, things that are leading our minds to places where they should not be, but you don't have to like all of the Christian music that I like. And by the way, uh, for, for me, I, I often, if I'm listening to a station on Pandora or one of those, those things, it's often Southern Gospel, because I grew up with Southern Gospel, the cathedrals, the inspirations, greater vision, or it's now, I'll listen to the City of Light station, and it's often the City of Light, some of the songs we sang today, and so that's often what I'll I'll listen to, or a hymn station. I I personally don't like a lot of the cutting-edge new music. That's not what I—and you don't have to like what I like. You might not like City of Light or Gettys. I don't—that's not my my concern. My concern is, are we approaching this issue biblically? I say all of this to say music matters. It's important. It's God-given. It's powerful. It impacts us deeply. It's not an issue where anything goes and it's all personal and subjective. Just because it says the word Jesus in it, there are some Christian artists I've told our kids, ah, we're not listening to that artist. They won't even take a stand on basics of Christian doctrine. They don't ever say Jesus in their songs. When I listen to the song, it could be just as much about her boyfriend as it is about God. It never says Lord. It never says Jesus. We're not listening to that in our house. I don't want to listen to a song wondering if she's talking about her boyfriend or about Jesus. Jesus, that's for me. Now that you might, that same singer might minister to you. That's between you and the Lord. But what I am saying is it's an issue where anything does not go, and it's not all personal and subjective, but in an effort to stay away from music that was displeasing to God in our culture, in our region, and in our generation, we Christian leaders have sometimes made arbitrary but definitive statements based on our feelings, imposing certain music standards as if they were biblical mandates. There is some music that is objectively wrong, and I will never listen to it or play it in our home or cars. The content is ungodly. The rhythm, lyrics, and musical components lead to feelings and actions that are ungodly. But there is also room in the world of music for us to have some different tastes based on our culture, our region, and our generation. The problem comes when we try to force our cultural, regional, and generational tastes on every other Christian in church. I'm almost done. It's not wrong to have music standards based upon biblical principles and personal preference. It is wrong to impose those on every other believer and even divide from good Christians because they don't share your personal application. Do we have that quote there? I I thought we had a slide of that, and we may not. It is not wrong to have musical standards based upon biblical principles and personal preference. It is wrong to impose those on every other believer and even divide from good Christians because they don't share your personal application. For instance, we had a member join a few years ago. He's sitting in the back there. I didn't tell him I was going to do this. Brian's back there. Brian had experience playing a full drum set in, in a previous church. And he had a desire to use his gifts to serve the church and in our music program. And And we had a cajon, and he began to play on the cajon, a percussion instrument with a heart to serve God from a heart of love and worship. He added a snare drum and and chimes and a cymbal over the next few weeks, and it added some depth and variety of instruments to our church music program. I'd love to see a full orchestra in our church. I'd love to see violins and saxophones and French horns and all of you that play. I'd love for, for you to be playing on a weekly basis. And we have the bass guitar and violins, and immediately... Immediately when I heard it, I'll be honest, I struggled, and I bristled. And for me personally, now I listen to Christian music that would have percussion instruments in my car, and in my office, and in our home, getting ready for church. But for some reason, when I was in this room, 
it's, I struggled with it. And I was kind of, is that okay? And I, I had to work through those things. Ah, I don't, uh, there's some of it, and Sammy and I had some conversations, and, and, and Brian and I had some conversations, and Sammy and Brian had some conversations explaining our church culture and kind of some of those things and what, what, our, what our preferences were. And I'll be honest, there were a couple of times, and I've told Brian this, where it was too much for me. And we talked about that. And by the way, that's subjective. That's not biblical. That's preferential. That's personal. And you know what's funny? For, at first, because it was new and it was something that I hadn't had and hadn't, now I heard it in Christian music every day of my life, but I didn't, hadn't, wasn't used to it in congregational singing, I struggled with it. And by the way, I know that some of you did too. Some of us have had some good conversations about it, and that's okay. And we talked about it a little with our staff, and Sammy and I talked about it a little bit. Brian and I talked about it a little bit. Can I be honest? The times when Brian's on vacation now, for me, I kind of miss, it's like, man, there's a depth to it that I miss. And when Joyce is gone, I miss the violin. And Rob wasn't here today, he's on vacation, I miss the bass guitar. There's, there's a variety and a depth, and you may not be there. And by the way, some of you, right when he started playing, came up, I think it was you, Jan, and said, I love it. I love what Brian's playing up there. And Jan, Jan was a liberal right from the beginning. She was on board from the start. By the way, some of you came up and said, man, I love that. I love the, we're getting more people involved, and I love that, the, the depth of the, 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 the songs, and I love what's happening there. Here's the reality. It doesn't matter whether I loved it or didn't, whether you loved it or didn't. Here's the reality. Are we approaching it biblically? Are we walking through this with the right spirit toward one another? I had one of our members, a good member. They've moved, not because of this issue. They were moving already. But they wanted to meet with me, and here's what they said. They said, I'm struggling with the percussion instruments on the platform. And here's what they said. They said, I was taught by my pastor growing up that drums in church were wrong. May I just say to any pastor that's watching, be careful what you teach people that isn't purely outlined in Scripture. Because you're binding burdens on people that don't need to be bound. You're putting things on their conscience that now, that are not from Scripture, they're from your personal taste. I want to be very careful in my own ministry and life about that. And, and this person told me, I, I was told by my pastor growing up that drums in church were wrong, and I said, well, help me scripturally, help me understand that. So I don't have any scripture, but I've also heard from this pastor in this conference I went to, I heard them preach that, and this college I went to, they preached that, and I said, I said, as kindly as I can say it, whoever told you that drums in church were objectively wrong was wrong. And I took them to Psalm 150. And I said, what are you going to do with this? The high-sounding symbol. That's a loud symbol. That's a percussion instrument. They danced before the Lord. The tambourines, the timbrel, the timbrel and dance. Praise Him with the timbrel and dance. Praise Him upon the symbols, the high-sounding symbols. What, 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 what am I trying to say? I'm not looking to get fog machines and, and, and a full heavy metal band. That's not who I am. That's not, I, don't, I don't know that that would bring honor and glory to God. Uh, that's, not what, that's not what I'm saying. There is no agenda here. The agenda here is, are we viewing this issue in light of Scripture? I kindly responded that, that, that that's not what, there's nothing where the Bible forbids that. It's not commanded or forbidden, it's a sacred cow. And I understand that during the rock and roll revolution that I was not alive for, many churches viewed drums as having sinful associations and being used for wicked things, and so pastors sought to stay away from that. But there is no doubt that percussion instruments were used in scriptural, God-honoring music in the Bible. There's no doubt. And, and, and by the way, just like we can 
can say that drums were used, and for some, you grew up listening to music that was not honoring to God, and there is an association with that that might be a struggle for you, and that's okay. That's just like the Jew or the Gentile that grew up with an association of meat offered to idols. It's okay that you don't land and have the liberty someone else has. What's not okay is for me to impose my standard on you, or for you to impose your standard on me, or for us to divide, as Craig said, not to divide over, over tertiary issues. No, the work of God is far greater than meat or our preference in private devotion or in public displays in any of those areas. They danced before the Lord. They were not sinful, sensual dances, but they danced and praised to God. We were in Israel last September. You know what we saw as they came in for their 13-year-old's bar mitzvah? We saw them all dancing, and they were coming down the thing, and they had tambourines and percussion instruments and drums, and they were beating them. And I got a picture of what Psalm 150 probably looked like a little more in the Eastern culture than what I'm used to in the Western culture. And they were all dancing, and it was a beautiful family moment. There was nothing sinful. There was nothing sensual. They were doing things that I might not have the comfort to do because I didn't grow up in that culture, but it was cultural, it was regional, it was generational, and it was beautiful. I asked this person, is the piano wrong to use in church? And they said, no, of course not. And I said, well, what instrument does an ungodly, openly homosexual musician named Elton John use to sing all of his songs? A piano. Should we get rid of a piano because Elton John uses it? Of course not. It's not inherently sinful, it's how it's used, and is it being used to point us to Christ? An instrument is not inherently wrong because of its associations or use in other contexts. We must go back to Scripture and test things like against that. When looking at our personal convictions, not just in the area of music, in any area, our personal convictions, standards, and beliefs, we must honestly ask ourselves, is this cultural, regional, or generational, or is this biblical? Is this cultural, regional, generational, or is it biblical? More simply put, we need to ask ourselves, is this my preference, or is this God's commandment? Is this, my, is this drawing me closer to Christ or farther from Him? Some of that is subjective and personal. And in those places, we can make personal standards that might be different from another, another Christian. But we don't need to preach against or criticize the one that doesn't have the associations we have with something, so they have liberty to eat meat that we don't have liberty to eat. I've gone too long. When it's objectively biblical, stand strong with no wiggle room. When it's subjectively cultural, regional, or generational, give grace and space for other good people to land a little differently than you in their application. Give the missionary in Africa a little grace and space that his church doesn't look exactly like the church in Orange County. Give the missionary in Cambodia a little grace and space that their songs are going to sound a little different than our songs sounded today. Give the pastor in Alabama the space and grace that their, that their choir is going to look a little different than our choir looked this morning. Let me illustrate and I'll close. How many of you, you're a meat and potatoes person. You just like some good old meat and potatoes. Meat and potatoes. Not really into exotic foods. You're not really wanting to try a bunch of all kinds of crazy stuff. You're like, I know what I like and that's what I eat. My wife is a little more like that. She tries different foods with me, but how many of you love to try all kinds of different food? You like to try all of it. I love Indian food. It's spicy. It's flavorful. We had tikka masala last night at our house. My wife cooked it. When my kids were younger, my kids didn't really like Indian food. Now they like a little bit some of it, but they didn't like it. Is there anything wrong with Indian food, yes or no? Yes or no? Is Indian food healthy? 
I think it can be just as healthy as, or maybe more than most of our American diet. Is it poisonous? But my kids didn't really like it growing up. Why? They weren't used to it. It's not how they were brought up. But you know, we had a lot of good friends from the country of India. You know what their kids loved? They loved Indian food. Why? It's what they were brought up with. And our kids, I can remember saying when they were little, oh, we're going to so-and-so's house. Oh, dad, I hope they have the naan bread and the butter chicken. That's like the only thing I like. There was nothing wrong with the food. It just wasn't their personal taste. And there are some things that we have tried to say is right or wrong, and it's just our personal taste. It's our sacred cow, and that's okay. You can have a sacred cow, but handle it the right way according to Scripture. Some different taste buds on how you grew up. That's what's happening here in Romans 14. God's good people were causing unnecessary division in God's church over their personal traditions and practices. Church family, Craig just told me right before the service, before he did the kids' time, he said, he'd asked me what I was preaching, and I said, if you want to do something about unity or something that's really what it's going to be about is, is approaching topics biblically. So he did that thing about let's not have forced unity, let's have real Christian love and unity in our church, not the handcuffs, but let's hold hands. And I was telling him before, I said, good luck trying to teach the kids on worship wars on your kids' time. And he said, he said, you know, I don't know, just, I know there has to be problems in our church, but either there's just such a great spirit here. He said, either you guys squash it real fast or I never hear about it. It also probably has to do with who you spend time with and who, because of who Craig is, that those of you that do have problems don't feel comfortable going to him because you know he has the right spirit. So you find the ones you know have the wrong spirit, but that's another message for another time. <laughs> but here's what he said, and I just ruined the spirit. The whole illustration was to say what a good spirit our church has. The whole illustration was to say that our church has such a great spirit on these issues. And I just ruined it by telling you you're a bad person. But that's what Craig was saying. There's a, a great spirit of unity in our church. And by the way, we all do things. We all, we all have some different tastes and some different upbringings and some different ways that our families look and act. And, 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 but we're all united around the gospel of Christ. Church family, let's not lose that. Be aware of the fattest calf of them all that has destroyed many a relationship Many a church has caused many a pastor hours and hours and hours of emails and meetings over something that was not objectively biblical, but was subjectively personal. And let's ask God to give us the spirit that, that Paul challenged them to have in Romans 14. Let's not allow Satan to bring division over worship wars or any other sacred cow that we may have here in our church at Liberty. Next Sunday night, we'll continue. And I'll give you more, many more Bible verses and principles to filter our music standards and church and personal music choices through. We'll look at everything Jesus had to say on the subject of music. We'll look at everything the entire New Testament has to say on the subject of music. So come back. It's okay to have preferences, but be careful using your preferences as an issue to judge those with different preferences or to make them a test of Christian fellowship and partnership. Doctrine divides. Preferences shouldn't. Was a really long message. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.